a suitable message uh, for Ross and Abby on the day that Ross is ordained and for us as a church family in maintaining a healthy understanding of what pastoral ministry is. It's important to us. Uh, it, this book is written by the Apostle Paul, uh, written to a church in Thessalonica, a church that he planted, uh, but sadly, through persecution, wasn't able to stick around for very long. He was driven out. Uh, he was concerned about them, so he sent Timothy back to find out how they were doing, and the report came back of great encouragement. When you read chapter one, you see that Paul is convinced of the genuineness of their conversion. He's absolutely delighted at the transforming effect that the gospel has had on them. He said, God has clearly been at work through the way you love each other and through the way the gospel is sounding forth from you. You're showing all the vital signs of a living faith in Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 2 and into chapter 3, if you were to do a little mirror reading of what's going on in the passage, you would understand that Paul's um, been the target of something of a smear campaign. The mob that had driven him out in the first place had turned on the church he had left behind. They were trying to convince him, look, Paul is just like some kind of flirt. He's just trying to have his wicked way with you. Get whatever he can get from you, then, he, then he's off. He's just used you, manipulated you. You've fallen hook, line, and sinker for it. And look at what's left. Paul writes to reassure them. The number of times that you see in chapters 2 and 3, Paul say, you know, you know, no, you know. We appeal to your memory. You know how we lived among you. He's underlining the genuineness of his ministry among them. And in doing so, actually puts forward for us, for the church throughout the ages, one of the clearest pictures of what pastoral ministry is. So this is what makes it an ideal text for Ross's ordination and for us in maintaining our own understanding about what ministry is. It regulates our expectations really as a church family. I mean, texts like these stop pastors like me and members like you adding arms and legs onto the pastoral ministry, onto the, adding arms and legs onto the remit that God has very specifically given uh, people who serve in roles uh, like I do, like your elders do. And they also set, this passage also sets forth something of a vision for ministry that encourages, and I hope even today, some of you sitting here to think, I'm going to do what Ross did. I'm going to give a year to ministry apprenticeship. I'm going to give a year to changing my vocation, to looking into whether or not I should be a gospel minister of sorts full-time in the years, uh, years to come. So uh, in terms of an outline for you, let me map this out. I want to give you three memorable pictures for what this looks like, uh, for what pastoral ministry looks like based on verses 1 to 12. Um, for you, Ross, I want you to be a steward, a mother, and a father. Okay, first of all, a steward in verses 1 to 4. What is a steward? I think when we think of stewards nowadays, we think of high-vis attendance at football matches. Uh, their job is crowd control and dealing with disturbances. And although that may sound a little bit like pastoral ministry, that's not what the Apostle Paul's talking about. Uh, in simple terms, he's using stewardship in the way that it was back then. A steward was someone who was entrusted with something and instructed on what to do with it. And in Bible times, a steward was often appointed by a homeowner, a landowner, or a, a owner, or a business owner to run the household, the business, the land, whatever, and manage that property work, etc. So the steward himself wasn't the owner. 
His job was just to manage the owner's business and do as the owner instructed. It's nice and simple. And I think that's the first picture of pastoral ministry that we find here in verses 1 to 4. Now, I admit Paul does not actually use the word steward in here, but the picture is implicit in what he says in verse 4. We speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, entrusted with the gospel. So he talks about approval and uh, being approved by God by being tested and chosen. He talks about being entrusted with the gospel. So he's been given something of incalculable worth. That's what the gospel is. And he's been tasked uh, with delivering it. And that's true of Ross. That's true of anyone in pastoral ministry. Uh, We have been approved by God, entrusted with the gospel, and tasked with delivering it. Now, at various times in your ministry, Ross, you might be tempted to doubt that. The enemy uses guilt and shame to keep stewards of the gospel, I think primarily from applying the truths of those gospels to their very own hearts first and foremost. And so my encouragement for you is to resist his lies. Uh, Christ's blood is sufficient even to save a minister from his sins. Now, sometimes the struggles we experience in ministry make us wonder why on earth we're doing it. I think one of the things that we do is we look back to the instructions that God has given us and to the particular call that he's placed on our life. So you can look back even to days like this when ministry in the future feels hard. Now, I want to say that your calling, I don't believe it's some super spiritual experience. I think the Bible is pretty clear in what it says that you desire the office of overseer. You desire pastoral ministry. And today, your church family and a wider church family of FIEC churches have recognized this ministry call and have set you apart from it. That, for you, really is the substance of a call to ministry and something that helps you to hang on and to not go back to that life of uh, acting, but to persevere in ministry. And as long as you don't disqualify yourself through doctrinal error, or immorality of some kind, your job is to get on with the business of being a steward, of taking that which has been entrusted to you and delivering it. Well, how do we do that? What, is, what exactly is Paul talking about? He's talking about the gospel of God. And he's talking about doing it as a means, uh, the means of doing that is through preaching and teaching. Now, preaching and teaching are the primary means by which God has ordained his word to go out. It is both a special and a strange thing. If you've, have you ever pondered this? I mean, God could have basically written his word in the skies for us every single day, a great big message. He could have given us an angel every day to come down and just whisper, here are my instructions for you today, and let us live according to that. But he chose not to do that. No, God has ordained that his word should be written down in a spirit-inspired book and opened up and read and taught taught aloud by spirit-gifted preachers that he has set apart. That's what the apostle Paul was. That's what you are, Ross. And I want you to encourage you to see this, that preaching and teaching is what's in view here, because Paul uses these words to describe his ministry among the Thessalonians. In verse 2, he uses words like telling, appealing, verse 3, speaking, verse 4, sharing, verse 8, preaching, verse 9, heralding even down into verse 13, both the gospel and the word of God, that's his task, and that's yours. Preach the words. Preach it faithfully and passionately, remembering this picture regularly. You're a steward 
You're entrusted with something to pass it on. You're the delivery guy. You're not allowed to change it. You're not allowed to open it up and see what's inside so that you can fiddle with it. You've just to deliver it. The Mona Lisa has only been uh, shown, uh, exhibited outside of Paris twice in the last hundred years in both Washington and in Tokyo. Can you imagine being the delivery guy that was given responsibility of this thing? This is owned by the nation of France. Handle with care. Okay, you're going to be a little bit nervous about that. What kind of insurance do you place on a priceless object? Well, think about this delivery guy. What's his job? It's to take what France owns and deliver it, say, to the U.S. Now, can you imagine what would have happened in France or the U.S. if the DPD delivery guy decided that the Mona Lisa actually lacked some kind of artistic merit? And maybe whipped out a brush in transit and updated Mona Lisa's dress with a nice pink number. Um, what if he did give her a little bit more of a pronounced smile or really believed that blondes did have more fun and adjusted her hair accordingly? What do you think the nation of France would say? What would the, the exhibitors in the US think about it? Well, the people receiving the adjusted painting would not be getting the real thing. It wouldn't stir the kind of appreciation that it was designed to stir in the onlooker. And the French government would be absolutely furious. You'd be called to account. Well, I think it's pretty much the same in pastoral ministry. An adjusted gospel is no gospel at all. It will not save. It will not stir the same kind of love for God and concern about sin that he has intended it. He wants it preached in an unadulterated fashion. As 2 Corinthians 4 says, we don't muck about with it. We set forth the truth plainly and so commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. In other words, there is absolute dignity Dignity in taking that which God has written down and no matter what people in the pew think or what culture pressures us to do, we set it forth plainly and are unmoved from it. And that's the call for you in pastoral ministry. G.I. Packer is one of my favorite wordsmiths, one of my favorite theologians. He says this about being entrusted with the gospel and passing it on. Christian ministers are to deliver the gospel, this message, not as another of man's bright ideas needing to be beautified with all the cosmetics and high heels of fashionable learning or attractive insight, but as it is a word from God spoken in Christ's name. That's what it means to be a steward. So study the word carefully. Read the Bible in its context. Preach expositionally. All these things we've taught you over the years and maintain your integrity as a steward of God and his gospel, not only before the people, but before him. This is how we please him. This is what Paul talks about in here. He says, I'm not a God pleaser. We're not trying to please men. He says, I am a God pleaser, sorry. I'm not a people pleaser. Let's get that right. Um, we're not trying to please men, but God, he's the one who tests our hearts. He was living for only one accolade, and that's what conditioned everything that he preached, everything that he taught. And it wasn't the church family's accolade, it was Christ's. There was only one well done he was after. Now, people-pleasing is a real threat in ministry. And it can influence how much you feel like you want to be bold with the preaching of the words. But integrity is found in pleasing God and saying what is before you in God's words. Please understand, 
Uh, People-pleasing pastors make the worst kind of pastors. They don't preach the whole counsel of God, and they just say more of the things that people want to hear rather than the things that people actually need to hear. And that's when you fall into error doing that. That's the kind of manipulation that Paul pushes back on. But courage and faithfulness to him in preaching the gospel is what you will do when you pass on faithfully as a steward what has been entrusted to you to deliver. So that's the first picture, a steward. Second picture in verses five to nine is a mother. You don't really see that in many pastoral CVs. What strengths or weaknesses? Strengths, I'm like a mother to my flock. You never really see that. But I love that the apostle Paul writes it in here. Now in verse five, again, if you look through the lines and think about the context, it sounds like Paul has been accused an awful lot of manipulating the Thessalonians, uh, like, uh, like I said earlier, like a flirt with some kind of wicked ambition. But he says, hang on, hang on. We, were, we weren't like flirting blokes. We weren't like uh, people pretending to care for you. We were like mums. No, no, hang on. We were like nursing mums in our ministry among you. And in doing so provides a second picture of pastoral ministry for us. A mother, a nursing mother. And what is he trying to articulate? By saying this, he's saying, we loved you. We loved you so much. Now, this is what pastoral ministry is. It's not just preaching God's word. This is crucial. It's preaching God's word to the people God has given me to love. That's your responsibility too. And Paul likens this love to, for the Thessalonians to this nursing mum. Verse 7b, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Now, what does this picture of a mother with her infant evoke? Um, what is the nursing mother an example of but loving affection and sacrificial service? Mums give up so much, don't they? Uh, to love and care for their children. It's superhuman in my view, really. I mean, in pregnancy, they give up their center of gravity. Uh, they even give up their nutrients to help the baby grow. Uh, it, it is sacrifice all the way. When the newborn arrives, of course, mums sacrifice their sleep and uh, sacrifice their calendars. Everything really revolves around the baby. And nursing mums share not just part of their life, but all of their lives with those little bundles of, what's the word? Oh, joy, yeah, that's right, joy, of course. And when, I mean, when that little one arrives, just everything changes. So much is sacrificed, but at the same time, it's welcomed. And that's why so much affection is shown. I mean, I loved seeing my wife look after our kids, and even when as babies they were up through the night, many times as well. It's a strange kind of love that makes a mum smile into the face of a baby that's depriving her of sleep for like the 340th day in a row. You know, it is an incredible thing. Now, Paul says, in the same way that a nursing mum cares for her baby, so we cared for you. We loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God. This was not some kind of perfunctory lecture. This was relational love. This was love. And Paul says, look, we weren't just out to fleece you. We're not out just to perform a task and then move on to the next place. 
It's as if he says, look, seeing you born again, seeing you grow, hearing of your development, it was a delight for us to even go through all the hardship and the persecution just to see this gospel take root in your life. He talks later in chapter 3, what is our our glory or our crown? Is it not you, he says? In other words, there's a day coming when he's going to stand before God and God's going to say, give an account for your life and the fruit will be behind him. The Thessalonian believers, people he has witnessed to, discipled and grown. And who knows, maybe even behind those people that he has had an, uh, he's preached the gospel to, those who've been saved, maybe those behind who he's discipled, there'll be another 30, another 60, another 100 fold, because the gospel just keeps multiplying. But it's preaching God's word that brings that about and it's preaching God's word with love in your heart so if stewarding provides a picture of our responsibility to the word of God then I think this mothering and fathering shortly this parental picture provides a picture of our responsibility to the people of God stewarding shows us what to do Mothering shows us the attitude and the character by which we do it. So Ross, whether you're caring for the broken, rejoicing with the happy, rebuking a wanderer, defending doctrine, uh, this this is some vocation. It's not a job. It takes way more than just time in the day and a qualification on the wall. It takes love. And it involves sacrifice. As we see in Apostle Paul here, sacrificial love will call on pastors to lay down their lives for the people Christ laid down his life to save. He is the chief shepherd after all, the great example for all in pastoral ministry. But if you're a fake and only in it for the reputation, power, and status, and some people are, the sheep will be an inconvenience to you and an irritation. You'll not love them, you will manipulate them. You'll not pastor them. You'll deal with them harshly. You'll be unmerciful and ungracious toward them, even though God is gracious and merciful towards you. Brothers and sisters, I wonder what you think this looks like in a church. Even today, every member of the church has different expectations about what love looks like. And often, people in membership of a church can feel that pastors fail to meet those expectations. It's probably true in many respects. Um, We are sinners after all. Uh, But plead with you for God's grace as we pray to him for it ourselves. But I've heard people say, uh, I don't really feel very loved. And it's a strange thing, you know. (laughs) Like, I mean, the pastor is the only job I know of in which people you don't like People that don't like you get mad at you because you don't visit them. Have you thought about that? It's a bit odd, isn't it? I don't like that pastor very much. Why? He doesn't visit me. I don't want him to visit, though. It's a strange thing. But I think we need to understand that the day we stop preaching the gospel to you, the day we stop laboring in prayer in in the study and in the study of the scriptures is the day we stop loving you. The day we stop visiting, the day we stop practicing church discipline is the day that pastors stop loving. Uh, We do not encourage our trainees to take up a profession. We encourage them to love church family deeply. 
and try to set an example in doing this. Now, one thing, one more thing must be said here. Yes, you must love the church family and serve them sacrificially, but I have to say, not at the sacrifice of your own family. Uh, this is a necessary warning. Uh, to many pastors, you see, ministry is a mistress, and it's sinful. Um, we ought to set boundaries. There should be times in the week set aside for your family. Uh, defend that time like Gandalf on the bridge of Khazad Doom. You know, you shall not pass, elder. You know, you shall not pass, member. I'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing. You know, protect, protect that time with your family. And be intentional about about discipleship in your family. Don't just assume that it's happening. And don't give them your worst, give them your best. Learn lessons from someone who's struggled in this area. And one thing to remember, of course, sometimes ministry does encroach on time with your wife or time with kids because you've been lazy during the week. So sometimes it's not because of the elder or the member or some other situation that's come up. It's because you've been lazy and you've not done what you should have done in the time that God gave you during the week, and they're the ones that suffer. Don't let your wife sit alone on a Saturday night as you have Saturday night fever trying to finish your sermon for Sunday. It will not, uh, Colin prayed earlier on about maintaining your health, your body, your rest, that's vital. Learn a lesson. Here's some of the sabbatical stuff spewing out here, okay? It's a heart to heart. Um, these are important boundaries to set, important things to keep in place, and be diligent in this work midweek so that you can love Abby and Ella and any other babies the Lord gives you sacrificially and affectionately first. Indeed, fail here, and actually this could be the thing that could disqualify you from ministry first. For as 1 Timothy 3 says, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? So firstly, be a steward. Secondly, a mother. Thirdly, lastly, a father, verses 10 to 12. So gospel ministry involves not only loving, sacrificial service, it involves exemplary living and ongoing encouragement. I think that's what Paul's trying to appeal to here as he puts uh, fathers in the place of the illustration. Now, Paul is drawing some distinctions here that serve to remind us of the complementary nature of God's design for men and women, and certainly of our parenting. And of course, dads love their children sacrificially as well, and no less than mums. And mums definitely do the kind of things that, that fathers are said to be doing in here as well. But there are particular expectations where roles differ, and dads are supposed to be a walking, talking example to emulate, coming alongside their kids to urge them on, um, that's why fatherhood, I think, provides this helpful picture of a crucial part of pastoral ministry. So pastors must provide an example of gospel living to emulate. This is, this is what Paul talks about here. The life we live basically should endorse the gospel that we preach. The life we live should make the things that we say believable. So people should hear what we say and see how we live and say, ha, the gospel really does transform lives. The gospel really does work. Now, what kind of example should be set? Well, Paul sets out the aspiration in verse 10. He talks about his example. 
you are witnesses of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Holy, righteous, and blameless. Who does that sound like? Who does that describe? The first person that comes to mind when you hear those words ought to be God's. And in the face of those questioning Paul's character, Paul claims to have emulated the very character of God. Now, it's quite a claim, isn't it? I was holy, righteous, and blameless before you. Perfectly? Well, I doubt he's claiming to be that. Um, Paul is not deity. But you can claim to be these things if you're a pastor who is applying the truth of the gospel to yourself. If you see that you, through faith in Jesus Christ, are positionally perfect in Jesus Christ, though you're sinful and progressively moving towards that holiness, you can say these things. And certainly that's what we aspire to. It's what we should all aspire to as Christians, not just for the pastor. Holiness, righteousness, it's Christ-likeness. That's what he's conforming us into. And that's what we should pursue. That's what Peter in 2 Peter uh, one says we ought to pursue, to make every effort to grow in all these different areas of godliness. So Ross, this is what proves the gospel to others. It's what keeps people from looking down on you for your youth. Watch your own life. It's perilously easy to, to professionalize the ministry, to read God's word for work's sake, not your soul's sake. Read with others, get counsel, Sin thrives in isolation, so don't isolate yourself. Godliness thrives in congregation, in people meeting together. You need the church family at Musselboro as much as they need you. So watch your life so that your life confirms and not contradicts your claims. But being a dad in ministry is, is more than just setting an example. It's urging God's people on in their faith. And that's what we see here in verse 11. Paul was accused of all sorts of things, but he says, you know, remember, we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. And what does that look like? Well, he gives us three things here, encouraging them, coming alongside them to help them find their way. Pastors are called to do the same. Comfort them, consoling them when things are hard and helping people keep going. Ministries, life is hard for everybody. But at various times, some people find it particularly hard and need help. Your help, the help of each other in the local church. And urging them when, when the church members need a good kick up the posterior. Or they need urged forward in their faith. When they are becoming dangerously lazy in godliness, that they need that warning that actually Hebrews gives us, as we've seen over many months, again and again. This is what pastors do. And don't be afraid of the necessity of that loving and gentle yet firm rebuke. And trust me, as a dad, I, I know sometimes a change of tone is needed. There's a difference between a happy son and a serious son. And faithful pastors will need to do the same with God's children. To see them grow, to see them make progress, just in the same way that a dad wants his children to grow, to make wise choices, not to drift or become complacent, but to remember what's important. And remember, as you'll know as a dad as well, it takes repeated instruction. If only you had to tell a child once not to beat up his or her brother or sister. If only you had to tell a child once not to pee in the garden. Um, you know, 
all these, we need repeated instructions again and again. Done in love and done with that exemplary call. So as a father in the faith, Paul kept on reminding them of who they were in Christ, what they ought to be living for, and his responsibility was to love the people committed to his care as if they were his own children, to love them like a mother, to educate them like a father, to bring them up gently but firmly in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and in so doing for us just presents this great ideal for a pastor. This twofold responsibility in 12 verses of your responsibility to the word of God, you're entrusted with it to pass it on. And a responsibility to the people of God, you have to love them like a mum and set an example for them like a dad. That's the twofold commitment that we are called to. As a steward, faithfully preach the word of God, Ross. As a mother, lovingly serve the people of God. As a father, set an example for the children of God. And church family, can I appeal to you in this as well? Pray for your pastors in this. Pray for us as we seek to fulfill these responsibilities that the Lord has given us. It's hard, but it's great. It's a wonderful privilege to be a pastor in his church. And at times, it's a massive burden that you struggle with. Uh, Paul writes about all the different persecutions and struggles that he faced. And he was beaten up and stoned and shipwrecked and all these different things. And yet there's one part where he talks about how he carries with him the burden of the churches. And there's a tone in that. He's not upset about it. But there's a tone in what he says that just sounds like that's the most painful thing he has to bear with. So please do pray for your pastors, your elders who have this kind of job description, these kind of uh, examples to live up to. And let me encourage each of you to think through and pray for who's going to do this next. Wouldn't it be great if we had two ordinations every year? Maybe three? Do you think that's something worth giving to and investing our time and our efforts in? I do. There are close to half a million people in this city who don't know Jesus. What does Jesus say as he looks on harassed and helpless people who need a shepherd? Ask the Lord of the harvest for workers. I don't think we're doing enough. I think it's actually a little bit of an indictment on us that we're not doing more. So who's next? And you don't have to be as young as Ross to be doing this. you're here today and you're not a Christian you might be thinking what on earth have I come into today do you want to know why we as a church really care about ministers we really care about people being set apart and commissioned to preach the gospel to as many people as possible it goes back to what I said at the very start about people who are 
Christian and people who are pastors being entrusted with something of incalculable worth. That's the gospel. The good news of Jesus coming, his living, his dying, his rising, his ascending to heaven, all these things that we've been singing about and talking about. The reason why he came and did all of that, as I mentioned at the very, very start of our service, is to show and demonstrate his love. God has billboarded his love for a world to see when he sent Jesus Christ into this world. And he sends people like me and every single person who's a believer in these seats here to tell as many people as possible about this so that they might understand what life is all about. So that they might understand for themselves that we're not just a random collocation of atom, atoms, atoms, no, atoms floating around the place. There is design for life. There's intelligence behind who you are and meaning in life. You have a soul. And that soul is answerable to God's. Because of our sin, our rebellion against him, we are far from him. And worse than that, under his judgment. And yet God in his love does not leave us in that predicament. He sends his son who preaches who preaches the message that God gave him to preach to the people God gave him to love. And we can count ourselves among that number of those who have heard and believed the gospel and have been loved by God when we turn away from our sin, saying sorry for it, and turn to God in faith, praising him for his goodness and his grace, the favor he's shown us that we don't deserve, and receiving his forgiveness and his salvation as a free gift. Have you ever done that? You ever thought about that? You might be sitting there and thinking, what you just said in the last two minutes, I have never heard that before in my life. Well, I'm telling you, not because I said it, but because of what God says, it is the most important thing you will ever hear in your life. And it's very, very important that you take time to ask somebody here or somebody that brought you today or somebody at the information point down by the sofas in the corner out there, what is that all about? What is this gospel? Help me understand it and believe it. Maybe you'll come to the same sudden realization that Ross came to in October 2011, and your life too will be transformed. There's nothing like it. God is glorious. God's love is wonderful. Believe it with your heart and never look back. Let's bow our heads and let's pray.